as we um, make our way through the book of Joshua and find the um, keys to living in victory. And it seems like we need that today, on this day in particular. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Remember that the Old Testament gives us a picture of the principles of the Christian life. The New Testament gives us the principles of Christian living. And the Old Testament, now that we can read back from the New Testament perspective, gives us pictures of Christian living. So that the New Testament might give us the skeleton principles of a message, but the Old Testament illustrates it. And remember that more than any other book, the book of Joshua pictures for us how the people of God go into victory, how they appropriate the fullness of God's promises and blessings. Canaan in the Old Testament never pictures heaven. It always pictures the fullness of the blessings of God and His promises. And the Old Testament, particularly the book of Joshua, pictures for us the stages of the Christian life. We go out, we go through, we go in, we go on. Most of us have gone out. We've gone out from bondage. We've been saved. At some point, I suppose we all go through dryness and defeat, the wilderness experiences. Very few of us ever go in. That is, most of us live our lives out in the wilderness, never having gone in to all the promises of God, all of His fullness and blessing. And then there's the going on to maturity. For the Christian life is stable but not static. 
Every place, he said, where you put your feet is to be conquered ground. Now I want to give you the proposition of this text right up front. This is the proposition. This is the message in one sentence. God's intention is that every Christian walk on conquered ground. Every Christian walk on conquered ground and live in dominion and authority. Every Christian was intended to live on conquered ground. Now when we talk about conquered ground, we're not talking about the ground where you are, you know, this physical ground. But where you are tomorrow, in every circumstance your life will take you, and where you find yourself to live victoriously, in victory, God's intention is that every Christian walk on conquered ground. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it make a difference? Wouldn't you lo- don't you long to live this kind of life? That when you get up in the morning, you do not say to yourself, I wish, I hope I can live the Christian life today. I hope I can overcome, resist temptation. I hope I can make it through this semester. Wouldn't it be wonderful? What a difference if instead you get up tomorrow saying and really mean it. God, I just thank you in rejoicing. I thank you that whatever I confront today has already been conquered by you. Now, what is the key point? How is it possible that every step we take is on conquered ground. I believe that the key to that is this, is a proper response to the promises of God. I believe that what God is saying is this, that if you respond properly to my promises, everywhere you tread is conquered ground. You remember when God brought His children to the, to the door of Canaan the first time? To the lip of the cup. He had promised them that He was going to give them that land that flows with milk and honey. He promised Abraham that and them through Abraham. And they came to the lip of the cup and they sent spies in to claim the promise, came back and said, we can't go in. They're like giants in there. And they made an improper response to the promise of God and they spent the rest of their life wandering in the wilderness. Now, I don't want to sound ministerial, I don't want you to think that this is just preacher talk, but I really believe this. That how you respond this morning to the promises of God can determine the rest of your life. You remember when Peter and James and John had been out fishing all night? And they caught nothing, toiled all night and caught nothing. And Jesus walking the next morning on the shore and he, he said to them, Guys, what would you catch? You don't ever ask a fisherman that. If they caught something, they'd blame sure tell you without you having to, you know, ask them. If they didn't, they don't want to talk about it. And I can just imagine Simon Peter saying, And and Jesus said, I I didn't quite hear you, Simon. Uh, What'd you catch? And he reminded me, didn't catch anything. Boy, you didn't catch anything. He said, well, let me tell you what, the cast on the other side of the boat, the implication is you'll catch fish there. Don't you know these guys who knew that Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand had fished in every place imaginable on the other side of the boat just as well? But, and, and so they protested. They said, Lord, we've toiled all night. Nevertheless, I love it, nevertheless at thy word. And they cast on the other side and caught so many fish it nearly sunk the boat at thy word. 
I want you to read sometime again Hebrews 3 and 4, and it talks about this rest that God has promised, this fullness of victory in life. And the Scripture says a sad word, yet all of God's Word had profited them nothing. Zero, blank. All that God had promised them profited them nothing. Why? Because they had not made a proper response to His Word. Let me say it again. How you respond this morning to the promises of God can determine the rest of your life. Now the question is, what is a proper response to His promises? This sermon has three points. I already found out I don't have time to preach two of them. That's, that's a little encouragement. So what I want to do is I want to mention points two and three, and then I want to preach point one in the 25 minutes left. Point number two, proper response to His promise is this. There must be an abiding in His Word. And so He says in verses 7 and 8, He emphasizes it. He said, This word of the Lord shall never depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, and not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. And what he's doing is this. He's setting the word of God as first place in the life of his people. He is establishing supremacy and authority. And he's saying that the word of God must have supremacy and authority in your life and you must not move from it to the right or left. That's what he was doing in the wilderness when he was tempted, and he came back with scriptures. He wasn't just throwing out scriptures that he'd memorized. He was saying, in essence, the Word of God has authority in my life. Supremacy with me is His Word. For man cannot live by bread alone, he said, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. So that the life of victory is this, that a man establishes the Word of God as supreme with him and does not move from it right or left. In essence, it becomes the source of all of our speaking and the subject of all of our thinking. He said, it shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. There must be an abiding in His Word. Secondly, there must be an action upon His Word. Now you read this again. I don't have time to read it this morning. But I want you to read it again, for he says it two or three times for emphasis, that you shall do according to all that's written in the Word. Do according to all that's written. Well, you see, the only reason why God gives us His Word is that we might act upon it. He doesn't give us His Word to put in our pocket or to put on a plaque and stick it on the refrigerator. As a matter of fact, you need to get the promises of God off your refrigerator and get them into your life. The only reason God gives us His Word is that we might act upon it. Act upon it. So Jesus said, when the storms come and the rains beat down upon this house, it'll stand. Why? Because you've heard my teachings and have done them. Did you notice what he said? He said, the sole of your feet, wherever the sole of your footsteps, he didn't say the sole of your sandals. He said that for purpose, the sole of your feet, that's the picture of a slave. Slaves went barefooted. Other folks wore sandals. And what he's saying is this, that the Word of God becomes such an authority in your life that you do every word of it without question now. Now let's go back to point one. 
and kind of mess around here for a while. We're in the neighborhood, so we might as well drop in and visit point one. Point one, that the key to living, walking on conquered ground is to accept God's Word as personal. Accept God's Word as personal. Now you stop accepting God's promises as theory or theology or doctrine or history. You stop that. Notice what he said. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you just as I gave to Moses. Notice what he says. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be to you. In other words, God is saying, just as I have in the past, just as I have to them, I do to you. Three things. The promises of God are not altered by time. Now, we believe the Word of God. Our, pro our problem is not the question of inerrancy. We, we, we're debating that among Southern Baptists. To my, to my sorrow, we're debating it. But the question is not, is this Bible inerrant? We, we believe that. We believe it from cover to cover in the maps. We believe the maps are inspired, most of us. I mean, the first, you know, the, the, the title, Holy Bible, yeah, that's inspired. We believe it, as the black preacher said, from Genesis to Revolutions is the Word of God. We, we believe this book is the Word of God. Nobody, nobody denies that. And you wouldn't elect a president who'd say that, well, I don't believe a Bible. You think Dan Quayle's got problems now. Let him find out that sometime when he was some kid somewhere, he said, I don't believe the Bible. And then he'll have some problems. We'd never elect a president. Don't say that I said he said that, but if he did, you think he, you know, we're not going to elect a, what if I got in here some Sunday morning and I said, I don't know whether I believe this to be the Word of God or not. Yeah, we believe it and we quote it. Shakespeare quoted from 54 of the 66 books of the Bible. Oh, we quote it and we say we believe it, etc. But we believe it as theology and as history, and we believe it as doctrine, and we believe these promises were made to somebody else, but not to us. That's what we believe. And we're thinking to ourselves, boy, wouldn't it have been a wonderful if we'd been Moses, because God was with Moses all the time. But we don't believe that that promise... God said to Joshua, As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. For God's promises are not altered by time, are not changed by time, are not altered by... They're not just for one generation, you see. Let me show you what I'm saying. What God promised to him, he promised to you. Now, you and I don't really believe that. You say, of course I believe, yet who is there among us who says, I believe that God has in His Word told me how to spend my money and I'm not going to make a purchase. I'm not even going to take a job and get a, get, a, get a salary. I'm not going to give a dime to the church unless I have found exactly how the Bible wants me to do it. How many people do you know that does that? And how many people do you know who say, yeah, I believe the Bible, who, would, who, 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 who practice this. I believe that this Bible teaches me how to be a husband and a wife and a father and a mother 
and, and I, so I'm going to raise my children and I'm going to live my home life exactly like the Bible tells me to do it. How many of you, how many people do you know do, who do that? I heard Campola preaching over at Dale City First Southern Baptist Church, big evangelism conference. He said, now I, may, I need to apologize to you guys sitting here, all these guys sitting on the front row, uh, you know, these guys that stand up and scream for the you know, inerrancy of the Scripture. He said, I'm going to apologize to you right now, but I'm going to say what I believe. You guys say you believe everything in the Bible. Why then are you not feeding the poor instead of building all these buildings? You see, the problem with Scripture is not it's the question of inerrancy. The problem of the Scripture is the question of relevancy. We believe it as practical as theory and as doctrine, but very few of us believe it practically and, and relevantly and authoritatively and applicably. The promises of God are not altered by time, secondly. The promises of God are not affected by circumstances. Now this is a pretty trying circumstance. God comes to Joshua and He says, Moses is dead. Nobody knew that. They didn't know Moses was dead. He'd gone a lot of times off up into the mountains to be with God and be gone for 30 days at a time. They didn't even, they didn't miss him. They didn't even they didn't question where he was. They didn't know Moses was dead. No, nobody did. Until God told Joshua. And he said, Joshua, Moses is dead. Now it's time for you to get up and go into the land of Canaan. Now that's a pretty tough circumstance. It was as we're going to notice later on in this series, it was... It was at a time when the Jordan was at flood stage. It was overflowing its banks, and they didn't have a bridge, and they didn't have a leader. What, a, what an adverse circumstance. Moses, the leader, is dead, and they got a rookie to lead the people. I mean, he'd never been to bat before. He'd never seen a major league fastball, a high hard one. He'd never hit a curve. He's a rookie. And I can imagine what Joshua, Joshua must have said. I can't do this. If Moses can't lead these stubborn, obstinate people into the land of fullness, how do you expect me to do that? And think of what the people were thinking when they found out Moses was dead. Because they knew about Deuteronomy chapter 4. That was when Moses stood up and said his farewell address to the people of God. One of the saddest sermons ever preached. And he said, folks, I want you to know because I've rebelled against God in the wilderness, I'm going to have to die out here. And they're thinking to themselves, if Moses fails... And he's not big enough to lead us through. How are we going to follow this rookie? You know, these are tough circumstances. Some of you are saying to, have said and are saying, I probably could live a life of victory if, my, if I had a little bit better circumstances. I mean, give me a break, preacher. I grew up in an ungodly home. I, I've had a tough background. Listen, you know, everybody in your whole family could be ungodly. Doesn't mean you have to be. Some of you are saying, give me a break, preacher. I mean, you sit in your cloistered uh, study back here. You don't know what the real world's like out there, you know. Uh, if my circumstances were different, if I had a different roommate, if I had a different job, if I had a different partner, I might live the victorious life. No, you wouldn't. If you can't live the victorious life under adverse circumstances, you couldn't even live it in heaven. 
For the promises and the power of God are not affected by circumstances. Do you believe you have as much of the power and the presence of God as Paul did? Of course you'd say no. I'm here to tell you, you have as much of the presence and the power of God as Paul did. For his promises are not altered by time and they're not affected by circumstances. You know what? an adverse circumstance is. It's just another opportunity for God to prove Himself faithful. And every adverse circumstance is just a call from God for you to believe Him. One last thought, please. Not only are the promises of God not altered by time and affected by circumstances, they're not alien to conditions. Now, I want to have to cheat a little bit and go into the seventh chapter And this is a part of next Sunday's sermon, but it needs to be said here. The promises of God are not alien to circumstances. God says to them this. He said, Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do mighty things among you. Sanctify yourself. Now, if you did a little study in the Old Testament concerning the period of sanctification you'll notice that two things happen in this period when they consecrated themselves or sanctified themselves. By the way, whenever God was about to gain great victory through His people, He called on them to go through this period of sanctification, and it involved two things. First of all, it meant that the husband, a husband and wife could not live together as husband and wife, or they lived in the same house. But they could not experience the intimacy of love. They could not live together as husband and wife. And what God is saying is this, that there must be holiness in your private life. What are you like in your most private life? Now I'm not talking about, I'm not even talking about where only your wife sees you or only your husband sees you, or only your children see you, or only your parents see you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in that part of your life where only God sees you. What are you like there? I'm telling you, most of us would flee this morning if we knew that our private life would be exposed. I read as you read, watched as you watched television, saw where this young preacher in Dallas, convicted of about 14 accounts of rape, the village rapist, Southern Baptist, graduated from Southwestern Seminary, grew up in a Christian home, one of the finest boys in the Broadmoor Baptist Church in, 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 in Louisiana, Bossier uh, City, Louisiana. And when they first arrested him, you know what everybody said? His father, who knows him best, said, Couldn't be my son. Couldn't be him. It's a mistaken identity. His preacher said, Couldn't be him. It's a mistaken identity. His wife said, They've gotten the wrong man. Couldn't be him. No, couldn't be him. Was him. And he said that from the time he was a student in college, he'd been watching pornographic movies. Pornographic movies. And he acted them out in these episodes of rape. I'm saying this, in the private chambers of your mind and heart where only God sees, what are you like there? 
And so God is saying this, here's my promise, you'll tread only on conquered ground and you'll live in victory when that area of your life is consecrated to me. Second thing it is, is they wash their clothes. They wash their clothes. They got them pure and white. And when they came out, they came out with clean clothes. That's why in the book of Zechariah, God said, Joshua the high priest wears filthy garments. What he's talking about there is holiness in your public life. What do you like when, where people see you? Where people do business with you? Where you guys on the front row move in the halls of Durant High? Where you guys are in the dormitories and in the classrooms and in the weekends and in the dates, on the dates, in the back seats, etc. ad nauseum. What do you like there? Holiness in public life. When, when, when the church, when we wash our garments, when we, when we make steps to consecrate the public life, God does mighty things. Somebody asked me not long ago why we give invitations here. You've never seen one. I told her there were three invitations. An invitation to come publicly to profess faith in Christ. An invitation to join the church. What's that other invitation like? What is that for? That invitation is for those Christians who have in public life, where people have seen them, where they have been, have seen their life not what it ought to be. And we come forward. We call it rededication. It's public confession. It's public cleansing. It's putting on the garments pure garments in public life. Now, what is the key to walking on conquered ground? It's accepting this word as personal. It's abiding in this word as permanent. It's acting on this word as practical. And how you respond this morning to the promise, to the Word of God, can affect the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Father, now I pray that you would draw to yourself, get glory, Get honor from this invitation that people who are lost would be saved, that people who are outside the fellowship of the local church would come, and that people who have sin in public life, in private life, would come to make it right. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.